clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 44th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Chairman of Rockefeller International, Rushir Sharma. If you're unable to be with us for the entirety of today's event, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, as always, it's my privilege to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. And good afternoon to all of our friends at Rockefeller Capital Management, clients, colleagues, and others who are listening to our broadcast today. It's my special uh, pleasure to introduce Rashir Sharma, who's our guest today. Uh, Rashir is uh, the chairman of Rockefeller International. Uh, he's a friend and colleague for a long time now. We're coming up on uh, 15 years. Uh, Rashir serves as an advisor to the firm. He's a resource to Rockefeller Global Family Office, advisors and clients. Uh, and he's a global ambassador for our international activities at Rockefeller. And uh, really is my eyes and ears and the firm's eyes and ears out in different parts of the world, which is an important part of uh, of our business, uh, given the interconnected nature of everything affecting our clients and our firm. Prior to joining Rockefeller, uh, Rashir was at Morgan Stanley for 25 years as head of emerging markets uh, and chief global strategist with responsibility for managing approximately $20 billion in assets, client assets. Uh, in his spare time, he became and remains a popular market and economic commentator, and he's authored now a virtual library, I like that phrase, of best-selling books, including uh, Breakout Nations. We're also pleased to be a strategic partner in Rashir's new emerging markets fund named, of course, Breakout Capital. Now, you've seen Rashir uh, all over the place uh, in interviews about his investor playbook for 2023. He calls it the uh, 2023 top 10 global trends. Uh, Rashir's well, done this for years. When, when, when did you start this? How, how long ago, uh, the top 10? Well, I've been in the top 10 for at least a decade, decade uh, yeah. in terms of coming up with such a formal list and yeah, used to always present at the annual conference, which we used yeah. to do together at Morgan Stanley. That's right, so yeah. over a decade, and now people look for it. Rashir, by the way, also writes a column in the Financial Times Every two weeks, right? Yes, every uh, Monday, Monday, yeah. And and uh, he won't say this, but just to be clear, um, that column is typically uh, one of the most read pieces in the Financial Times uh, every week. I mean, you can look and, and, and they tell you uh, which ones are getting uh, read and clicked on the most. Um, as Tom said at the beginning of this, uh, as always, we'll take questions from uh, listeners uh, on teams which are in front of me. We've had some come in already. So you can engage and interact on this uh, with me and with Rashir. So with that, I'm going to jump into it. As always, we're going to stay on time. We'll do this uh, until exactly five o'clock and wrap up on time. Uh, we're pleased uh, to be able to start 2023 uh, with somebody who is bringing as much insight as my longtime friend and colleague uh, Rashir is. So Rashir, let's start with something that um, uh, I had never heard before, which is uh, at this point in my life uh, less frequent, uh, zediophobia. Um, a condition uh, affecting global investors uh, who uh, are still adapting to potentially the uh, end of the easy money era. So rather than me uh, jump in and, and try to defend, uh, define it, uh, and I didn't pronounce it correctly, 
tell uh, the listeners what uh, zetiophobia is and what it means and why you're talking about it. Right. And, 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 and by the way, I'm not the only one, right? I mean, you were saying even the FT. Right. I, mean, I wrote about it in my uh, weekend essay for the FT on the top 10 trends. Even the editors were a bit stunned as to what this term's all about, but it really is very appropriate uh, in the current circumstances because it is about uh, a state of mind which is in complete paralysis because you want to, you know, you have to make a very big decision, a, a life altering decision, but you can't get yourself to do it because it requires such an effort to make that because everything you believed in in the past, you have to almost disbelieve it. So it's a life altering decision, but so huge is the task of making a decision, they're just frozen. And I feel that's the case with a lot of the global investment community currently, which is that a lot of the rules of the game, so to speak, over the last 10 to 15 years were guided by having very low interest rates, easy money. And that seems to have shifted uh, in a big way. Now, for, for the first time in- Yeah, for the first time in a generation, practically. And by the way, while we're, while we're sharing and I are talking, he has slides that he typically presents on these topics. Uh, and Mike and our tech team are going to uh, uh, show these slides as we're talking. We're not going to necessarily stop and refer to them, but this is a lot of the analysis and data that underlies Rashir's argument. So I just wanted to make clear that you can see that on the screen. So, but this is, you know, uh, so the the end of easy money. How long has it lasted in your eyes? Is it? Some people say forty years since Volcker, since rates came down. Is that? Yeah, that's that's quite likely. And if it, it got turbocharged as time went along, yeah. which is that as we had low and low inflation central banks became more and more emboldened that even though we had asset price inflation, because we had very low consumer price inflation, they were more emboldened to keep on easing at the slightest hint of trouble. So therefore we got a period where you really didn't have any meaningful uh, time in recessions. You had, uh, uh, I found this study that we did fascinating, which is that uh, many years ago, like hundreds of years ago, in fact, the global economy used to spend a lot of its time in downturns, uh, and then you'd have very strong upturns. But the amplitude of the business cycle kept getting smaller and smaller, whereas in the last few years, you really didn't spend that much time in a downturn. And because the central banks were able to pump liquidity and get the system going at the slightest hint of trouble. The issue we have now is that we are possibly in a much higher inflation regime, which is that inflation, rather than being 2%, is structurally likely to be 4%. And that means that the interest rate regime we are in is also likely to be higher. The zero interest rate regime seems to be behind us. And now we're in this very different interest rate regime where even though inflation is currently falling from its peak, it's unlikely to go back to where it was because of the changes that we've seen. The workers' um, attitude have, have changed in terms of you know how difficult it is now to get people to work the way they used to work uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. To be clear, not a Rockefeller. Not a Rockefeller. Yes. Right. I'd say that there have been many changes yes. that have taken place. And you have demographics. I mean, you got declining population in China. And you were talking about the, the demographics here. Away from immigration, population in the U.S. last year was, was flat. 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 Yeah. flat. You know, like essentially yeah. flat. The entire increase in the population in the U.S., whatever we had, just over a million, came almost entirely from immigration. Right. So big demographic shifts, big shifts in the attitude towards work. And so what we have now is a much tighter labor market on a more permanent basis. Uh, even if we get a downturn, the unemployment is unlikely to rise that much as it has in past downturns. I was sure, didn't, you know, I mean, 
three years ago, when we, when we went into the pandemic, it's interesting. The, the, the things that central bankers seem to be most focused on was the was having any pricing power, right? They're, they're worried that the Japan situation was going to be here. You know, there'd be no pricing power. There would be robots replacing people, right? There, there was so much automation coming. The, the pandemic was going to increase automation. So you were going to have higher levels of unemployment. People would remember we had 20 million jobs disappear here. And there were a lot of articles at the time saying, would they ever come back? But, so people were completely wrong three years ago. Not only uh, did we get pricing power and inflation, it became a problem, despite the Fed saying it wasn't going to be. And, uh, you know, not only did we not have so many robots, that there aren't enough jobs, there aren't enough people for jobs, right? I mean, they, three or four years ago, the orthodoxy was completely on its head, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, in fact, I mean, I remember writing at that point in time that the robots are coming just not in time, which is a fact that, the, yes, you're seeing increased robots, but the demographic shifts have been so significant and that I think has been really underestimated by the world. Now, not just the US, even places like China and stuff. There are now 60 countries in the world, six zero, where the working age population is shrinking. You know, right? Are those mostly developed markets? Though? Mostly yeah. developed markets, but including China, as we saw. Yeah. That China has hit this inflection point where its overall population now, for the first time, is beginning to shrink. Which is a huge problem. Which is a huge problem for them. Yeah. So these are major demographic shifts which are going on with significant implications for the um, labor markets and also for where inflation possibly settles on a more permanent basis, which is that rather than 2%, it's closer to 4%. And so it's the end of the era of very low interest rates and very easy money. Uh, and so that I think has significant implications for how you manage portfolios, how you allocate capital. And that I think is something which has not been fully appreciated by the investment community, or if they, even if they've appreciated it, they're frozen just now because they don't know where to go. Yeah. They're still playing by the old playbook and they don't know where to go. So the big winners of the last decade were what? The US as a, geog as a geography, uh, privates as your investment vehicle, tech as the favorite sector, and also growth stocks as an investing style. I think all these four are likely to be uh, questioned going ahead and the winners are likely to be much more international, much more of a value tilt and much more in terms of the publics with much better than private. So yeah, that's yeah, the big shift. Yeah, and we're going to go through a lot of those in more detail. Yeah. That shift you're talking about is a shift in in you know in the current environment through the next five or ten years. That's yeah. So that this is not just a shift for a transitional period of time. Exactly. That's going to go on. Yeah. So let's go to um to the second uh major trend uh which is uh uh, related in, in some ways to the to the uh, you know all the excess money that's been pumped in, in this economy in particular, right? Peak dollar, yeah. Uh, if, you know the the first of all, make the case for peak dollar, not just in terms of that, but even reserve currency. You've talked about will will will, will the dollar remain the reserve currency, and what does that mean for uh, for the world, but also for Americans? Uh, yeah. If if the dollar not only declines on a, on a relative basis, but if it went all the way to, you know, one of the issues is, as I even say this, what's the alternative still? I mean, that's the best rebuttal, right? There's exactly. Still, but, but, you know, so let's talk about peak dollar, then let's go to that top. Right. So let me split the dollar here in terms of the cyclical and the structure, right? The dollar has been the world's reserve currency, which is the dominant currency in the world for over 100 years now. Uh, so that's been the case. But what's happened over these 100 years is this, that the dollar has not always risen through this period. We have, we 
make the mistake of confusing the dollar's dominant reserve currency status with how it behaves on a real-time basis. Those two things are very different. So the dollar has been the world's reserve currency in 100 years. The last 50 years, we've been in a freely floating exchange rate, the so-called post-Bretton Woods world since the early 1970s. Since we came off the gold standard. Exactly. And in those 50 years, the dollar has spent as much time declining as it has spent rising. So the dollar is not always going up, even if it's the world's reserve currency. In the 80s, it was because of rates, it was very strong. Yes. And then it declined on a pretty much, you know. In the 90s, the the dollar declined a lot. I mean, you know, like the yen, uh, when it came off the gold, you know, like when it was pegged to the dollar, was I think 300 or something. Exactly. In the 1970s, we were not, but... But the 1990s, the yen was at 100 yeah. to the US dollar. Yeah. So the dollar has not always risen over this period. The dollar has gone through cycles, typically rising for about five, 10 years, and then declining for five to 10 years. So, and we have just had the longest dollar bull market in history. Yes. The dollar has been on an uptrend practically since 2008, nine. And that's your slide. That's yeah, right. So yes. for about 11 years or so, the dollar has been on an uptrend. Yeah. And my point is that the dollar is now due for a downtrend. So this does not raise the question of the dollar's reserve currency. Yeah. That, it can still remain. Yeah. Like it has for well, 50 years. Come, let's come back to that. That's, that's right. right. For the, but for now, yeah. my point is that for the next few years, the dollar today is very overvalued. Typically, when it's had such a massive appreciation, it tends to decline from there. Yeah. And one of the very interesting statistics that I pointed out in there is that for the first time in our living memory, Greg, New York is the most expensive city in the world. Yeah, I saw that slide. That yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's never been the case. It's always, it seems like it's, it's certainly been on the list though every time, right? I mean, my whole life it's been expensive, and now it's number one. Number one. It's yeah. never been the most expensive city yeah. in the world. Uh, it's, like in my memory, it's always been some. Yes, like other city, yes. Hong Kong. Yeah, or here, 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 here we go. In 2016, Singapore most expensive. New York merely seventh. Yeah, and now uh, New York's tied with Singapore. Uh, yeah, for the most expensive city in the world. Yeah, and that tells you that's partly because the dollars become so expensive. Yeah, so everything now is more expensive here compared to other countries. Right. So therefore, I feel that the dollar on many metrics, whether it's got to do with uh, more economic metrics like real effective exchange rates purchasing power parity, or more real-time indicators like most expensive cities in the world, the U.S. and the dollar are looking very expensive. So this is a case for so just arguing. Implicate, yeah, keep going. Implications from an investor standpoint. So yeah. this is just a case for arguing that the dollar is likely to be in a downtrend for the next five to seven years, not the end of the dollar as a reserve currency, but just in a downtrend, and that's very common for the last 50 years or so. Yeah. So in that environment, typically international markets do much better than the US does. And that's the next trend that we speak about, that we are in this major disconnect today where the US economy is 25% of the global economy, but the US stock market in the global MSCI index, for example, is more than 60%. And that's true even after the correction. Yes, that's true after the correction because other markets have also fallen. Yeah. So yes, the dollar, so it has peaked, but I think that this disconnect can't last where the US is 25% of the global economy and more than 60% of the global stock market. So this is your rise of the rest of the world. Yeah. Yes. So therefore, I feel that in the, in the next so how, years, how, how, how's that going to work? The other the other other stock markets are going to become more highly valued. That's one of your arguments. But you also think there's still pressure here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's like a balancing act. That if you look at the US as a share of global stock market cap, 
the average has been about 45% over the last 50 years. So there's always a gap between GDP and, yeah. Yeah, so the US has always been the world's dominant capital market. Right. So all these arguments that I'm making, like a lot of people tell me, are you betting against America? Yeah. Never bet against America. I said, I'm not betting against America in its long-term future. America's long-term future still remains bright to me over a 20, 30-year time horizon. But when you look at uh, history, what it shows is that after America does well in one decade, in the next decade, it at least pauses yeah. or reverses some of those outsized gains it makes in a decade. So you have 25% of world GDP, which isn't going up. That's yes. A big number. Um, and you have 60% of stock market capitalization, and the typical ratio has been 25 to 45 over yes. you know, the last three or four decades. Exactly. And so that here, now I'm going to see some normalization of this, yeah. where the international markets end up outperforming the U.S. And we've already begun on that note this year. Yeah. Uh, it's short, but uh, in terms of time period, but we've begun on that note. So therefore, I feel that's going to be the path for the next few years uh, with the usual zigzags along the way. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to one of the things you, you raised that uh, is, is something people love to talk about, and that's tech. Right. Um, and tech... Uh, you know, it's obviously been an incredible decade. And I think on your list of uh, of the top market cap companies, tech dominated in 2010 and in 2020. So they've hung in there, right? I mean, no, I'd say that tech dominated in 2000. Yeah, and then, say in 2010, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, they were all in the, oh, the end, end of 2010. Right. Okay, yes. Yeah. Okay. So tech uh, dominated in this way. So this is a very interesting chart. Yeah. What does this show you? This shows you that if you look at each decade, the top 10 companies in the world. In the subsequent decade, if you look, eight or nine of those 10 companies changed. Yeah. So once you reach such a pedestal, you become so big, then you get all sorts of pressure, yeah. which is that the business model something like that. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot of regulatory pressure. You get lots of other small businesses who come after you uh, to eat your lunch. And so this changes. Yeah. So the last time tech dominated in this significant way was at the end of the 1990s. Yes. Uh, but look at the state companies then. Nokia, IBM, yeah, but they're different, all gone. different companies. Except all, Microsoft. Exactly. Yeah. Except Microsoft, they, they've all gone off the chart. You know, I, I once did an analysis of the uh, of the S&P uh, and the number of companies that are still in it over decades. And as you know, when you looked at this, the S&P itself over 30 or 40 years, 80% of the returns, it's gone. It's gone. It's unbelievable. It is one of the strengths of America too, that the companies are you know, uh, they're pushed, they're, they're shrunk, they're merged. Yeah, that's how capitalism is supposed to work. Exactly. Yeah, so that's how capitalism is supposed to work. So what's, what's, what's this going to look like in 2030? It's already changing. Yeah. Right, which is that if you look at it at the end of the 2010s, look at the 10 companies on that list. Of those 10 companies, three or four have already disappeared from the top 10 list. Uh, the Chinese have gone. Uh, Tencent and Alibaba, those have been shrunk by the crackdown that the Chinese government launched there. And even a company such as uh, Facebook now doesn't even rank in the top 25 anymore. So Facebook has fallen significantly. Some of the other companies are still up there, but I suspect that this is going to change quite significantly. So churn is the norm. And, and we're going to see that. That in the, uh, So I, I've been saying this for the last couple of years that I would not allocate too much capital to these 10 companies which are in the top 10 list, because uh, once you get to that level, the odds are that in the next five to 10 years, you underperform significantly. Now, let me ask you a corollary of this, though, on tech, because tech is, and you agree with this too, 
it's it's changing the world, continuing at an incredible pace, including in places like healthcare, where I, I think healthcare innovation is going to continue to do amazing things for all of us, hopefully. Um, what about new tech? I mean, tech will continue to innovate. Companies will continue to come up. Could you know at some point will if you took tech, we didn't look at this, but if you took tech as a percentage of stock market capitalization, it probably peaked, you know, in the last two or three years. Yes. So the and I remember financials did too before yes. the the the, the uh, once these things get to about thirty percent in aggregate, th- th- it has to come down. I mean, like it, it but, comes down. But is tech going to play by that rule? Well, it'll come down, but could it go right back up in five or ten years because it's tech, because it's innovation? Could yeah. It, could it snap back with different companies? Well, it did, you know, but yeah. it takes a while. Yeah. Uh, it's snapped back, but it's still very expensive. Yeah. And even after they've fallen, it's still very expensive. I'm thinking even new technologies that are developed and that move in. Like tech might be the one thing that comes down because these companies become all the reasons you said they become the target. And but then as so it comes down for a while, but then a new wave of innovation because technology is constantly moving. That's right. Might push tech. Tech could be the sector. Tech yeah. Back up. That's right. And we're yeah. seeing that the Chat GPT kind of sort of articles which are coming out about the new kind of companies yeah. coming in there and with higher valuations. So you've seen that. But in general, I think that if the 1990s playbook is any guide, that once the bubble bursts, yeah. it takes a long time for it to recover. So if it's possible in 20 years time, you know, like tech is still there in, uh, in a very similar way as a share. Yes. But I think for the next five to 10 years, it's going to come down from the very elevated levels because the valuation is going to come off. Yes. Not because of anything else. Innovation will continue. Yeah. The valuations are down. The new companies take a while. The innovations. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's right. So let's go to um, uh, a theme that uh, uh, that I, I thought was so neat that you worked into this, which was um, uh, one of the drivers of tech has been the advent of streaming and the proliferation of streaming services. And I fancy myself a little bit as, as having some knowledge here because like three kids in their 20s. Right. right. And content. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a world where you had channels two, four, seven, nine, and eleven in the U.S. That's it. We didn't have cable, right? right. When I was a boy, uh, and now you have, you know, things that are made, uh, you know, programs that are made, content that's made, and and I think if it's successful, only two hundred thousand people see it and they consider it successful. So you've had a massive amount of content produced. You think that that is also something that's going to change here, which is a really interesting insight. So let's talk about that. It's an extension of the like entire tech bubble and easy money that you had so much easy money that ended up subsidizing a lot of programming. Just look at the amount of new series coming out. I mean, it's the choice is bewildering, right? And by the way, a lot of it good. Yeah, but a lot of it also junk. I agree. So, so, but yeah, so one of the very interesting graphs that I used in my um, uh, FT article, in fact, showed that if you look at the average rating of Netflix series, you know, the IMDb score, which is a very industry standard for ranking. For the last 10 years, it's going down and down. Because they're making the is going up so much. No, because they're making so much content. Exactly. So the quality is coming down. Quality is coming down. Yeah, so yeah. the quality is coming down. Yeah. Uh, this is the law of diminishing returns, that you put so much content out there, you commission all sorts of series, uh, including for every one good, there are 10 yeah. Uh, turkeys out there. And, and, and you're saying they did this because they had all of this easy capital available. Exactly. And, and there really was no ability, there was no notion that, that, that many of these were going to be profitable. That's going to make a bunch of them and then something will work. Something will work. We want to get more subscribers in. We're going to throw more content at them. More and more. That's what that you got to do. And I, I'm seeing that what's going to happen now, which we're already seeing, is that a lot of, because of the tighter money, a lot of these new uh, series being made or getting commissioned 
they're getting cut back now. There's already evidence of that. So what you're likely to see is lesser number of new series getting commissioned. And what you get to see, possibly the quality, you know, gets higher. Yeah. You know, like one uh, discussion that I was having around Christmas time is that when people go through their list of what are the best things they've seen, despite so much content being out there, you sometimes struggle to pick even three things that you really want to recommend to people. Yeah. So uh, even, yeah, yeah. Particularly, even even me, I don't I don't watch a lot, but I've seen some good things. And yeah. There there is the, the proliferation's been spectacular. Yeah. It's so different from the world 30 or 40 years ago. As I said, pre-cable, you had you know three networks. That's right. But super, but I think that we reach the other extreme here, which is that so it's much content, much. it's too much. So now that gets rationalized. So it's a natural extension of the. Yeah. Take bubble burst. So did you did you talk about White Lotus and the Kardashians in, in one of your articles? Like in the FTP. Yeah. So what did you say? I, you know, I mean, I, I just said that, you know, for every good white you're lotus. Watcher? Yeah. You know that for every good white lotus, I mean this is the popular series on HBO. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think that's a great social uh satire. It's, so yeah, that, uh, exactly. Yeah, they, you know that for every one social commentary satire like that, there are 10 like the Kardashians or yeah. some snow, you know, like some snowflake mountain or something like that, which are complete <laughs> dugs out there. So I think that's what, you know, like that we have to be more discerning. And I think that the streamers are going to get more discerning in what they commission. And so we get better quality, but less content. That's uh, I think from, 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 from this standpoint. Yeah. yeah, I think you're spot on and it is connected right back to tech and, yeah. and, and, and easy money. I mean, your themes, that's one of the things things you do are sharing these, these trends. A lot of these things are interconnected, easy money, tech bubble, and then the proliferation of content. And yeah. now it's those those things pull back and then content's going to pull back too. So let's go on because there's so many things to talk about that you write about. Um, uh, echo bubbles. I, I've heard you use this word too, bublets. Right. Is that a word? Yes. That's okay. right. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was small caps, clean energy at one point, cryptocurrencies, SPACs. Um, so uh, uh, how does an investor know when a bubblet's occurring? Yeah. How do you position yourselves? And we had an interesting question come in, which I'll ask after you do the overview here um, from Neil Rubenstein, one of our private advisors in Dallas. But let, let you do the overview, and then I'll tell you what, what Neil wants to know. Yeah, so this is a study that I had done a couple of years ago. ago again, I'd written an FTP on this saying that how do you identify a bubble? And there was a very good Howard paper on this. And what uh, one of the main characteristics of a bubble is when something has been rising for a long period of time, and then in an 18 month spell or so, it more than doubles. So after a strong price rise, it more than doubles towards the end. That's what was identified as a bubble. And then you get a lot of speculative interest in it, a uh, lot of, Overtrading, overvaluation, and overownership. Those are three things that you get. And the price trend, where things are rising, and then in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, it more than doubles. So that's the classic definition of a bubble. Okay. What I had said two years ago was that there are three uh, or four bubblets out there, which is that the entire market may not look like a bubble, but there are definitely bubblets out there. And those bubblets I had. Uh, identified as being crypto, as being clean energy stocks, profitless tech, so many tech stocks, yeah. profitless facts, as some of the bubblets out there. And what I said was, if you look at the study of bubbles, what you typically see is that um, once a bubble bursts, which is the price declines by more than 35%, after having had this incredible price rise, including 
of more than uh, and you look double. At, and you look at a lot of them and they, they went up over a long time of time, and then you get the double in a short period of time. That's what right. characteristics are, are true in a lot of the, Exactly. So like all them. these things, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I did the work that all these things qualify for that. Okay. okay. And then, but once they fall by 35%, that mm. mass came over because then they go on to fall by at least 70%. Okay. So that was the thing because um, so many of these things have corrections along the way, and you never know when the bubble is bursting. Yeah. And typically coincides with higher interest rates. Yeah. So higher interest rates are the trigger which bursts the bubble, and once they end up bursting, they decline 70%. But here's the interesting thing. So this, so that was about bubbles. Then we have bubbles identified, but echo bubbles is another twist to this tale. What are echo bubbles? The framework being that bubbles don't burst in a straight line. You all often end up getting very powerful counter trend rallies. Uh, you have this on the, on yeah. the, on the dot com. Yeah. And yeah. so I said, in terms of the commodity bubbles uh, yeah. and the dot com bubble before that, that once they burst, you still got very powerful rebounds. Yeah. And those rebounds were as much as 50 to 60%. But you needed to fade those rebounds because unless well, the price. How do you, I mean, some of this is you're a great investor or you're not. How do you know? As an investor, we're talking to our clients, we're listening to advisors. How do you know when when these are just echo bubbles versus uh, you know uh, the trend line is actually down? I mean, exactly. So I just said, I call it. Yeah. yeah. So the two things to identify, they said, like to go back. One is to first identify that it was the bubble in the first okay, place. So that's the the double in the. That's exactly. the double in the last eighteen months after yeah. having had a strong rise. Yeah. Second, when they burst, two things are going on. One that they declined by thirty five percent. Yeah. And, and you looked at that 35 percent, 35 percent is like 35 percent. Yeah, boom, down. boom. Like once it's down 35 percent, you know, the bubble has definitely burst. So even then, when you get an echo bubble up, you shouldn't buy it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that you, like you shouldn't buy it. Yeah. And it typically takes about two to three years at least for the decline to happen to 70 percent. Yeah. So strong bounces along the way, suckers rallies, yeah. fake them and goes down to at least 70 percent. And then it takes many years for them to recover. If ever, if ever, exactly, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so so some of these echo bubbles and some of the the ongoing secular seventy percent decline is ongoing. It's ongoing just now. So in fact, you've already seen that in the last few weeks, we've seen very strong bounces take place in some of the cryptocurrencies, some of the Chinese tech stocks. Yeah, like all these were the, you know, like what I'd call bubbles. Some of them at least, and I'd say that all these things starting you have to be very wary of the fact. That this may be too early to be buying these dips just now. Can I ask a question on that though? Barry Winter said something in on this. China, let's talk about China for a second because the 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 the, the rally in Chinese tech is a, a, is the result of some pretty fundamental changes, which you wrote about just in the FT when you wrote about Xi Jinping this weekend. So some pretty fundamental changes there. Is that an echo bubble or is that more they're changing policy and that may impact uh, the investments? Because so, what Barry says here is. Uh, while there are many obvious reasons to be cautious of Chinese equities, our clients have relatively low exposure while China is, re is aggressively reopening as a central bank that's not tightening. They're saying they're, they're now pro-technology again and innovation. Um, you know, how do you recommend, how do you think about China? Is, is it an echo bubble or is it they're changing policy and you can rely on it for a while? Well, I think that you can rely on the policy change for a while. I think that's for real in terms of what they're doing. The problem in China is much more long-term in nature, which is why you have to be cautious about how much exposure you have. Because the problem in China today is that because of the debt, 
they have, the demographics which have shifted, which we re referred to, the long-term growth rate in China is likely to be more like two and a half percent. So that is very different from the China we have known in the past yeah. seven, eight, nine percent. Yeah. So this year could be okay for China, but the long-term problem in China is that the two and a half percent growth rate means we'd rather invest in places with much better growth prospects, in, you know, like in emerging markets or other places, rather than investing uh, in China itself. So I think that's the way you have to sort of think. Yes, the policy changes for real, so the worst seems to be over for now. And for the next few months, things may look better. But the long-term problem in China is the fact that because of a shrinking population, too much of a debt overhang, the growth rate is unlikely to be more than 2.5% on a 5-10 year trend basis. No matter what the government does. No matter what the government does, because there's only that much the government can do to alter the outcomes of the past yeah. things of debt yeah. and to and the fact that you're shrinking population now. Yeah. You know, if the population shrinking, how do you grow? Yeah. There's no country in the world that's been able to grow rapidly with a shrinking population. Just doesn't happen. Yeah, so it's interesting. We can talk about that too because it's a conversation you and I have had many times. You know, GDP growth is a function of, a, of, of an increasing population. So yes. they're producing and productivity. Yes. So if the population is declining, you need significant productivity growth to, to create any kind of growth. Exactly. It went on 7%. So it's just, with the shrinking population, there's just no way. It's exactly. They haven't conceded that, right? The, the government. Yeah, they, you know, they're still targeting 5%. Yeah. And as I've written in the past, that's too unrealistic. How do you get 5% growth when your population is shrinking? Yeah. No country in the world has been able to do that. And the productivity data is not that great either. So it's very hard to get back. I do want to come back to Xi Jinping because you did talk about some significant shifts there, which are good for China and the global economy. But before we go there, let's go. Uh, we've got the slide up. Japan, you're upbeat on Japan. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about why? And, you know, because this is a, a, a change, I think. And yes. And, and uh, you know, for the first time, for the first time. And, yeah. and the reality is, I mean, I, you know, I was coming out of law school in the late 80s when Japan was front and center in the world. Yeah. It's been a difficult 30 years. Yeah. So tell us why. Well, it's the first time I'm feeling better about Japan in 30 years, to be honest. Okay. So, uh, yeah. you know, because of two or three reasons. One, it flows from early discussion. Do you know that this is the thing which stuns me, which is what I put out here, that for the first time, Japan's labor costs are lower than China's. That is amazing. That's an amazing thing. Even though yeah. China's a much poorer country than Japan, than the per capita income. Yeah. So that's very unusual to happen. Two, that a lot of the problems we thought were Japanese have in fact become global. Yeah. One has to do with debt, that the private sector debt around the world has gone up. We thought that used to be a Japanese phenomenon. Yes, Japanese government debt is very high, but the private sector debt is no longer just high in Japan, it's high everywhere. And second is demographics. Japan has been condemned for a long period of time with a shrinking population and thing. Now, as I said in the opening graph, that there are 60 countries in the world where the working age population is shrinking. So what used to be a Japanese problem is now a global problem. It's an interesting the way you say this. Uh, yeah. Japan's demographic disadvantage is narrowing simply because everybody else is catching up. Exactly. It's not that they still have a declining population and no immigration, right? Right. But the rest of the world is yeah. also seeing a similar phenomenon now, or many parts of the world. So Japan's negatives are no longer just Japan's negatives. Yeah. On the positives, you've got two or three things working for Japan. One, as I said, is the fact that you got um, labor costs, which are much more competitive. Two, the corporate Japan's attitudes have changed a bit. They are embracing more of what we are used to hearing 
America, which is in terms of focusing more on profitability, profit margin, something which we thought the Japanese companies didn't do that well. And the third thing I like about Japan is that from an investor perspective, I keep saying that the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. Which is that things that people love too much, as investors, we have to be wary about because we know those are getting overcrowded and overwhelmed. Back to tech. Back to tech. Yeah. Things people hate, we have to be a bit careful about because usually people hate it for some crisis going on. Yeah. Indifference is the best part. Nobody really knows or cares. When I talk about Japan, nobody even knows what's going on out there. So people yeah. still love tech, America. They still hate Europe, thinking that Europe is condemned to crises all the time. And when it comes to um, Japan, people don't know anything about it. It's yeah. a bit indifferent. So if you think something is truly changing in Japan, I think it's worth engaging with. And the yen being so cheap, I think adds to Japan's appeal for me at this point. And have Japanese companies, and I honestly, I'm less, upbeat, I'm less uh, up to date on this as well. I, I, I used to go there a lot in, in the in the early days. But same thing. It's, it's been it's been in this. There's been this view of Japan for a long time. So you know, yeah. everybody's kind of locked in on it. Are um, are the companies more outwardly focused and in, in investing, you know, buying companies elsewhere and trying to build the their business in, in, in markets that are growing faster than Japan? Yeah, so that's one. Yeah. As I said, the, the focus on corporate profitability is more, but again, one of the themes that we spoke about, you know, about you know, like some of the best companies in the space of automation, robotics, they're all in Japan. Yeah. So I think that they have the industries that the world needs. Uh, that's one advantage. But the second, as I said, is that the companies there, the domestic Japanese companies, which were not that focused on things like uh, rewarding shareholders, corporate profitability, those attitudes have changed. And so corporate profit margins in Japan have also gone up quite significantly over the last few years. So these are some of the changes happening in Japan, which make it interesting. And given the uh, the alliance between Japan and the United States, some of these companies have robotics, they may build plants here, yeah. take advantage of the labor here. Yeah. But let's go to this topic too, offshoring outside China. Talk, talk about that. I mean, is that a lot of dialogue around that during the pandemic? Yeah, because China was, you know, zero COVID. Is that picking up steam and which countries are the beneficiaries of that? You know, so um, we've spoken a lot in the past about deglobalization and also that there's been a lot of talk about onshoring that American firms bringing uh, factories back home. But the evidence suggests something different going on. So yes, you're correct that people are much more wary of China. Now it's very hard to just shut your factory down in China and start producing elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, so you can't do that because it's very disruptive. But there are two things which are going on. One, that the costs in America or in Europe, in the developed countries, of producing something is still very high. And the cost in many of these developing countries is still very low. So there is still an appeal to offshore. Just that people don't want to do it in China anymore because of geopolitical reasons and because they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket. They want to diversify. So therefore, they, all these other countries are benefiting more now. Vietnam, Indonesia, India. Some of these countries is where people are now looking to set up more and more of their factories, of their offshore centers, because the labor cost advantage is still very significant. In Europe, it's much more to Eastern Europe. And even possibly Mexico could benefit, just that the politics in Mexico has never been that friendly for it. But so that's what's really going on. The offshoring is still continuing, just not the incremental dollar is not going to China anymore. 
it's going to these other countries and economies in Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, possibly Mexico. Which will benefit them. What about uh, just to come back to the US? Because there was, and Jimmy Chang has done some writing on this. There have been some, you know, uh, like the uh, Taiwanese uh, TMSCC building plants here. And are we bringing more investment back into the US? Are things happening? And, and the, the, the uh, Build Back America, the Biden bill on the clean tech, doesn't that require a lot of that money to be spent on plants here? Is that is it coming? So is the U.S. going to create more jobs and factories here? So there's definitely like a push to that, and there's some anecdotal evidence that we point to. The data doesn't show it as yet. At least. So it's not material. Yet. Yeah, it's, no, no, it's not material either. And that partly could be because maybe things have become, it goes back to our like original point, that maybe because things have become so expensive out here, thanks to the U.S. dollar. Yeah. A decade ago, when I wrote my first book, Breakout Nations, my basic argument there was that America is the cheapest country to do business in uh, because the dollar was so cheap. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, at that point in time, against the euro, it was whatever, 130, 140. Against the yen, it was closer to 100. And uh, against the emerging market currencies also, it was really cheap. So that's changed now. So I think that it's about the fact that the dollar may have also become very expensive. And so it's difficult now to bring stuff back home. And the advantage is still there for offshoring outside of America. So um, the, 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 the decline in the dollar, the relative decline, you know, as it devalues, that's, that, that it's, it seems like that's something that you're expecting to see more and more in the near term, like yeah. a couple of years. Yeah, next couple of years. And that should then finally make, make America competitive, competitive again, again yeah. eventually. Yeah. But I think that's so a that's cycle spare. Cycle too. Yes, yes, that's a cycle spare. Three, four, five years. Um, Okay, uh, this other uh, notion, uh, one of the things you, you uh, highlight is a top 10 trend, the return to orthodoxy in the markets. Yeah. Can you talk about that? And I have a question on that uh, uh, as well that was sent in. Yeah, so Greg, you know, uh, over the last few years, as we had so much easy money, what happened was that governments took liberties with that, which is that they were able to run big deficits, run big debt levels, and the very few countries got punished for it. Yeah, maybe like in Europe or Greece did, or some countries. Yeah, right yeah. yeah, and you know, but very few countries did. Yeah. Last year, the big warning shot sent around the world, which was heard, was when the UK government tried to do something which very unorthodox, of cutting taxes, blowing up the debt and deficit, at a time when it offered no matching spending cuts. And you look at the violent reaction of the markets that followed. When I talked that morning, I was on CNBC that morning too, yeah. and it was, it was on the, the, the speed with which the markets reacted was staggering. Yeah, and so that's a big change. Yeah. And I think that's happening more and more around the world, that, air, that as money gets tighter, as financial conditions get stricter, the ability of governments to just keep spending and borrowing is gonna be much more restricted. Something similar is playing out in Brazil currently, yeah. which is that you got a very left-wing government which came to power. He comes to power Lula and he talks about that he wants to spend much more and do away with some of the uh, orthodox measures of the previous government. And he's getting slapped down by the markets. So the advisors now are out there in damage control mode because they understand that all the uh, work that he's planning may get undone if the markets revolt and push up the cost of financing the debt a lot. So we're seeing that now around the world from UK first, Brazil, many of the smaller countries that you've got to be much more disciplined in how much you spend 
when money has become more expensive and financial conditions tighten. And you've actually taken this to its logical extreme and said that even the U.S. government needs to be careful yeah. with just we're going to spend whatever we want to spend. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, we've got uh, the, the government heading toward, uh, you know, the, the talking about shutdown. Yeah. Uh, uh, what do you think? I mean, the, 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 they're playing with more fire in the current world than they were two years ago. Yeah, years I ago. think that they haven't recognized that. But if we get to that stage in, in let's say, come summer and to get that, I feel that this time the market's going to be a lot more punishing than they would have been in the past. So these the dollar will get hit? Yeah, I mean, if it comes to that, I'm hoping yeah. we don't get to that. Yeah. But if we come to that, I think that the U.S. faces major negative consequences because this world has changed. Yeah. This is not the world where you get away with what you could five, ten years ago, even for the ultimate yeah. superpower and the ultimate reserve currency in the world. Politicians are often the last ones to get that note. Yes. Uh, Christina Klepper Virgilio, IELTS Group, said the following. Uh, Christina, you spoke about a return of orthodoxy in policymaking. Are you seeing any challenges to that possibility given governance difficulties in the U.S. House? So she's raising this point. Yeah. You know, that uh, if, if the U.S. If the Congress, in part because of the House and the dysfunction there, struggles to, 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 to do this, you think even the U.S., to Christina's question, is part of this? I think again. It gets much more smacked this time than it has in the past yeah. because, as as you pointed out, the politicians haven't got the memo. They're the last to get the memo. Yes. That that we here in the financial markets are at the leading edge of this. We can see it. We can yeah. see it happening around the world, and I think that politicians in the other parts of the world are belatedly waking up to the fact that they need to recognize this new world. I think that the last people are going to be here in Washington who get that memo. Probably. So let, let's shift gears because another uh, one of your um, uh, themes was um, uh, bluebirds. I love this because uh, I asked you why bluebirds, and you said because they're always optimistic and happy. And it's a symbol of joy. So, joy. so the yeah. bluebird is an actual thing, which yeah. is that it's a symbol of joy. And so the construct I had was this: that if you, if you recall about, you know, like in the uh, just before the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, the term black swan became very popular. Yes, it was uh, written by this author as a way of uh, you know, like uh, saying that something unpredictable can happen, which can completely shift and change the first time your assumptions. Like, oh, wait, that's the first time. Yeah, in like 2007, I'd say, what? I think when the, you know, like, the book came out, it Black Swan. Like it's been out there forever. Yeah, yeah. so okay. the term Black, Black Swan, Swan came event. out. Everybody talks about exactly. it. Exactly, so everyone speaks about a Black Swan event, which is, a, I think, a negative tip, right? Yeah, so in terms of that's not how it was meant to be, but that's how it came to be, okay. which is that people uh, saw a Black Swan event as a quick reference to some sort of, very negative shock occurring, which shakes the system up. Yeah. So people are on the lookout for that. The point that I'm trying to make here is that given the pervasive gloom that we've had around the world, that maybe there's also some bluebird which shows up. Yeah. And a bluebird is a symbol of joy. So in a, so in a way, it's the mirror image of a, of, a, of, a, of a black swan. And I first speculated about this in a piece I wrote for the Financial Times three months ago, saying that the entire world thinks we're going to have a recession. Uh, for the first time, the economists are actually forecasting a recession rather than recognizing one after it's well uh, played out. And I said that maybe it's time to think about what the bluebirds could be. Yeah. And um, I mentioned two or three bluebirds there, including the fact that maybe we end up getting a very mild winter. It was purely speculative, which has now happened. And it's happened. So, and so therefore, in places like Europe, yeah. you know, there's a big relief currently because yeah. Like even the German uh, chancellor is feeling so confident by saying 
Germany will never have a recession, or at least not have one in the near term future. Yeah. Massive turn in sentiment, which is why the European markets have been up too. Yeah, that's right. So I think that the whole issue is that when you go too much gloom and doom out there, maybe it's time we look for bluebirds. And there could be another bluebird, which is that nobody thinks that uh, there's an early uh, end to this war in Ukraine. Maybe something happens there. I have no idea, but I'm just trying to say that when you you know that you can get positive surprises too when everyone is geared up for uh, a very negative environment. I think it's a great theme, and to be honest, I, I hadn't talked about the theme, but Bluebirds is a great way to express it. One of the reasons I think it's a great theme, and you and I have been at this for a while now, is because the the world when it when it's always it, it gets too optimistic and things run bumplets and. You know, and, and there's, and you know, it's always going to be good. I remember in 2006, a colleague of mine at Merrill Lynch saying to me, uh, "There's so much liquidity out there that um, you know the, the system just has to go on, and 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 uh, you know, markets are just, you know, even if there's problems, markets are just your your massive pools of liquidity for every security." Yeah. Twelve months later, we couldn't sell a CDO to anyone. Nobody right. responded. Yeah. It went from him describing this massive liquidity to zero in the marketplace. So optimism goes too far and pessimism goes too far. Yes. And then things happen and that, and that starts to bring the shift the other way. I yeah. think you nailed it for sure. So let's talk about one of the pieces that you've written recently, which is, I thought, tremendous piece and, and was immediately the most read piece right. in the FT. The piece you wrote on Xi Jinping, uh, the the about face there, which you can you lay out, is a, is a clear bluebird for both the Chinese people and the economy, but also for the global economy, given that this is the second biggest economy in the world. So talk about your piece that you just wrote on Sunday. Yeah, so I, you know, like the, um, I've been quite pessimistic on China, and one of the reasons for my pessimism on China had to do with the fact that under Xi Jinping, it seemed to be going down this very status, authoritarian, almost Maoist-type uh, uh, system. Yeah. And, that seemed like the conventional wisdom as well, because when they ended the party congress in October of last year, everybody thought that this is Mao 2.0 uh, in terms of the way he was outlining policy and speaking and purging any, any opposition to him. And here we are, that he's taken a series of steps uh, to reverse everything that he was doing from COVID in terms of the zero COVID policy to the crackdown on the property sector, to the crackdown on the tech sector, to even the uh, his approach to foreign relations with places like the U.S. Everywhere he's taken a much softer stance, if not an abrupt reversal. And that, I think, has been a big surprise to the world. Uh, now, I know there's a lot of skepticism as to whether this will last and, you know, that he's, at the end of the day, a wolf warrior and that it's going to But they pulled back even on that too, right? Yeah, yeah, in terms of that, he's going to come back is what the, the skepticism is. I'm saying that may be true, yeah. but for now, let's recognize there's been a big pivot uh, as far as he's concerned. So we just have to be intellectually flexible. And I'm not convinced, as I said, I think the long-term economic picture for China is very challenging because of yeah. demographics and debt. But as an investor, as an observer, uh, you can't have ideological biases and you have to be flexible to recognize if something has shifted, even if it's uh, brief. Yes, I actually think as I, and I'm not an investor, I, I know many of them and, and hopefully lead them, uh, but I think some of the best investors I've seen yourself, uh, Avery Sheffield, are what you just said. It's not about emotion or, you know, an ideological bent. It's just about, okay, I'm looking at the world and if it shifts, I'm going to shift. Yeah. 
and, and the world moves so fast, you have to be able to do that. Yes. Um, so let's go, because you're an emerging markets expert, let's spend a, um, we're winding down on time, but I wanted to make sure I, I talked about um, uh, things happening elsewhere in the world. 2023, uh, an awful election year in the U.S., probably a relief for everybody, um, but not everywhere. Uh, Turkey, Nicaragua, you know, uh, you want to talk about a, a few of them, because you follow all of this, you track it all. Because you're, you know, theoretically investing outside the U.S. and in, in, in everything that you do, anything you want to, any market or or um, election you want to kind of, yeah. You know, one sort of um, often what makes news is what's happening. But for me, one very interesting trend was the fact about something not happening. That did you know that for the this is the first time uh, uh, in many decades and definitely first time this century that no major country in the world is holding a national election. In uh, 23. In 23. Wow. Yeah. So zero. Zero. So in terms of the fact that usually there's always some major country in the world where elections are being held. This year, if you look at the 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 uh, 10 largest economies in the world, or you look at, you know, like the G7 or whatever, no elections, no national elections anywhere. So that's quite remarkable. So the spotlight is therefore on some of the smaller countries holding elections. Turkey is the most significant one because there's Erdogan, such a yeah. polarizing figure. And an important figure in Europe, Russia, the whole yeah. thing, right? So yeah. that's a very important election coming up. Uh, in the emerging market world, Nigeria has an election because it's been such a dysfunctional economy that people are hoping that you get a reformer in place who comes and fixes what is Africa's largest economy, but a very dysfunctional economy. So those are a couple of important elections later in the year. There's Poland, which is also very important because, again, it's in uh, like significant Eastern European and Asia, and they have three million, four million, five million. Yeah, three million, million like Ukrainians in there, yeah. and very welcoming of them. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a very interesting. That's actually something you and I have talked about. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it, they, they had a, a labor shortage, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they had a major demographic challenge. Yes. They had three million or so uh, Ukrainian immigrants come in there, and they've been very welcoming of them, very embracing, yeah. because often societies can be very hostile towards immigrants. Yeah. But they've been very welcoming of it. So it's quite interesting what's going on there. But the bigger picture is this, that this is a very remarkable year where none of the major economies and countries in the world have a national election. And just by coincidence, that's not happened in many decades where you have such an absence. And next year is going to be very big. Okay. Yeah, let's say from, uh, from US to um, India, they all have big national elections next year. So this year, at least we get some pause from the election cycle yeah. uh, and maybe a bit from politics and the focus turns to some of the smaller countries uh, or at least middling parts having elections. The, um, uh, a couple, and I, we're going to run out of time, but there's a couple more things I want to ask you. Um, uh, and it's an incredible, uh, you know, walk across the world that you do uh, with these trends and the insights. Um, looking out 10 years, because you were one of the best at looking out one year, and but you're constantly analyzing everything. Biggest surprise in, in, in the world, in whatever it is, like uh, 10 years from now. So if it were 1997, you could say to me, there's going to be an iPhone in 2007, and it's going to change the world. Right. What, what do you see 10 years from now as a major surprise that, that doesn't exist today? I mean, in terms of, I love talking about 10 year surprises because neither you nor I'll be here to exactly. Oh, man, we're safe. We're not good. We're very safe. This is an estimate. Yeah, yeah. The end of the year. yeah, we're very safe in, in terms of, you know, making those forecasts. But as I, as I said that in terms of that, the 
biggest surprise could be that you know maybe uh, Europe really comes back, yeah. uh, which are, because everyone's written Europe off. Um, are you optimistic on that? No, I mean like it's very hard to be because as I said that it's you see so much of you know, but I'd say that the world would be surprised. It's that Europe comes back because it's so beaten down, yeah. uh, both as an investment and both as an, from an economic perspective, that if yeah. Europe has a good decade, I say that would be the single biggest surprise. If you look at the top 10 companies in the world, no uh, European you know, like, there are no European companies today. There have been no European companies in a, in a long while, in fact. Uh, and if a European, and if you look, uh, it, it, but there was a time in the 1980s when four or five companies used to be yeah. European, including banks from Europe, like stock chain and stuff, used to be the top 10 companies in the world. Yeah. And, all, and the banking sectors never recovered from it. Exactly, yeah. never recovered. Right. And if something comes back, so I'd say that if uh, we're sitting here. For the world too, I mean, this whole notion of the decline of the West, that Europe were actually to, 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 you know. To come back. back. Yeah, yeah. so if we sit here 10 yeah. years from now, and we look, look at the top 10 companies in the world, let's say as a, as a sort of, uh, uh, reflection of that, uh, and let's say five or even four are European. Yeah. I said that would be a huge surprise. Yeah. Something very hard to bet on today, but it, since you asked for surprises, that would top it. Um, as you said, the, the U.S. 25% GDP, 60% market cap. That, that, that's going to come more in the line with 25-45. But you are uh, continue to be optimistic about uh, all the things happening in this country. So 10 years from now, you still expect a whole bunch of those top 10 and top 20 to be American companies. Yeah, that will always be the case. But I said the share used to be 45%. Yeah. And if you look at the top 10 companies in the world, there will always be five or six American ones. Issue is that uh, by the uh, currently, if you look at the top 10 companies in the world, eight are still American. Yeah. I think that ratio is going to uh, change and get more into balance. Uh, Rashir, it's great to, great to have you as always. Over to you, Tom. Thanks very much. Thank you to Greg and Rushir for all of their insights this afternoon, and thank you all for taking the time to be with us for this uniquely Rockefeller special client event. If you were unable to attend for the entirety of today's presentation, a replay will be available shortly through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. This concludes today's presentation. Thank you again for taking the time to be with us, and from all of us at Rockefeller Capital Management, have a fantastic rest of your week.